So Jeremiah, if you'll come, if we'll make him feel welcome to Pecan, administer to us tonight. Praise the Lord. Thanks, brother. Well, it's good to be with you this evening, and uh, I want to share with you out of John chapter 5 tonight. Uh, this is brand new material. In fact, uh, it's the first time I've really ever presented this in a formal setting like this, and it's, uh, so it's a new study for us, and, and uh, really excited about it. John Wesley, an uh, amazing fellow, got into the scriptures, um, said stuff like, I'm a man of one book. That's what he was about. I mean, he was into the Word. That's what he was after. Really like that. And uh, he began to come up with a concept. He began to, and, and that's not the right language, he began to discover something that was going on in the Scriptures. And uh, later ended up, I guess, uh, um, teaching and preaching on that his whole life. And we understand that concept today in the Church of the Nazarene, similar to what Wesley understood it to be, uh, as entire sanctification. Um, Again, that phrase, entire sanctification, doesn't appear in our text, doesn't appear in the scriptures. Uh, it's not spelled out anywhere. There's not like a, are you listening to me? There's not an A plus a B equals C in terms of this plus this and you know, you'll be entirely sanctified. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the New Testament authors, you understand, uh, didn't talk about it. Um, and in fact, I have to believe that uh, what John Wesley was trying to describe is an undertone of the scriptures and what, uh, what was going on in the life of those in the early church and obviously in the life of Jesus. And I want to talk to you about that tonight. Um, something that's had a profound influence on me that I've been seeing surfacing in the life of Jesus. I really want to share it with you. Uh, last night we looked at John chapter 4, uh, which was verses 43 through 46, which again was a recap and evangelism. And uh, actually, we didn't. We looked at verses 30, uh, 39 through uh, 42 of chapter 4, which was the recap of the evangelism in Samaria. And we moved uh, into, on Sunday, uh, the last half of uh, John chapter 4, verses 43 through the end of that chapter, and looked at uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Well, by the time you come into John chapter 5, Jesus is back in Jerusalem. Uh, they had these feasts that took place there. And uh, obviously the first one that we appear at, see Jesus appear at and, and he's there and doing some things and uh, it was the Passover. Uh, there was three major ones a year. This is one of those three as well. It's the Feast of the Jews. And so Jesus is now again back up at Jerusalem. And I really want to talk to you about this. We've divided it up in kind of three studies uh, because there's a number of different uh, things that are taking place here that are worthy of our attention we'd like to discuss. And again, uh, it's easy to kind of run after certain things in the text and to focus on certain things in the text that the author is not really focused on. And uh, this is really interesting here, because again, this is a healing ministry uh, that's going on here. There's a man that's healed, been crippled for 38 years, Jesus is going to intersect his life, this boy is going to be healed. But what is really interesting in this whole deal is that does not seem to be the focus of what is taking place here. In other words, the whole thing that's taking place, the healing on this man, the big deal is not focused on the healing. That seems to be a side issue for John. There's other things that are taking place. For instance, everything around this subject seems, uh, everything around this setting seems to be dealing with the subject of the power and authority that is focused in the speaking of Jesus. Uh, this has been going on up to, up to this point in the gospel. Of course, John gives the very identity of Jesus as the speaking of God on display for men. Um, that's how, uh, instead of a birth narrative, he gives the first 18 verses of his gospel uh, to explaining kind of 
his understanding of who Jesus is. He calls him the Word became flesh. Uh, all throughout uh, the Old Testament, you have God coming down and he's speaking through his prophets. Uh, he's speaking to Moses. He's speaking to the patriarchs. He's speaking and revealing himself. And he comes to a point in time where he speaks in such a way that he could not, he could not reveal himself fuller. Everything that he is, everything that's going to, uh, that's going to give insight into who he is, the full extent of who God is, which is amazing. They say there's no depth to that, you understand. But the full extent of who he is, he speaks in one word, and that word somehow floats down to earth, takes on flesh, and marches around the countryside, and we call him Jesus. And that's who this guy is. And so all the things that Jesus is saying, I understand, see, you cannot separate anything that Jesus says from anything that God says. Uh, you, you run into this in John chapter 7 when he shows back up to uh, one of the feasts again. And they're amazed and say, where did this guy get such learning without having studied? And Jesus says, listen, the words that I speak are not my own. They come from the one who sent me. So what's going on through Jesus is not from the mind of Jesus. I mean, it might be from the mind of Jesus, but it's really from God. So God is, he is the vessel by which God speaks. But that's what makes him up. That's what comprises him. Uh, that's the whole deal. So everything focuses on that in this passage. And it's been building up to that. Um, there's also something that's really significant here that was kind of the first study and we didn't get to, get to that this week but the second study I've really been intrigued by this guy um, one of my worst enemies I would say my greatest enemy in my life and you might obviously as a Christian say well it's the enemy it's the devil you know and uh, yeah but there's another one that rivals him in my life and it's me <laughs> I'm probably the greatest enemy in my life. I'm not even kidding you. I cause myself more trouble. I cause myself more pain. See, every time, I'm telling you, you may be different for you, it may be different for you, but every time I fall flat on my face, it's me. It's because I've gotten in the way. It's because I've taken control of something. It's because I've leaned on my own strength. I've leaned on my own abilities, which opens the door for the enemy to have havoc in my life. Right. See, if I would just get just plain flat out of the way and let him have his way in my life, I'd be fine. Is it any wonder that Jesus' number one priority is take up your cross, die, and follow me? See, if you want to be used by God, drop dead. Just drop dead. Just kick the bucket. Country saying. Just stop. Just give up. Just come to the end of your resource. And we talked about this earlier this week, I thought. I think we talked about it in the past and we talked about it. About the whole idea. We have these sayings in the Church of the Nazarene. Probably other churches. But we hear them in the Church of the Nazarene all the time. That God is never, never, never late. But he's never early. You know, I hate that saying, man. I hate that saying. See, the only reason why he's not early is because you and I work like a dog to try to get it done, and at the last minute, when we're out of all other options, we turn to him and go, help, and then he moves on us. Wouldn't it be something we would just learn from the very beginning if we just start with help at the very beginning? Then he'd be way early. But he's never early because I'm never at the end of my rope until I've exhausted all my resource. Wouldn't it be something to live there? Wouldn't it be something to constantly live over your head to constantly live at the end of your resource. To constantly come to the realization that you can't handle what's about to happen to you. You can't handle life circumstances. Get up in the morning and say, God, I'm done. <laughs> it's over with. I'm not going to be able to make it. Just move down in this. I mean, whatever I go into, I'm just leaning a holy on you because I can't, I can't deal with this today. I want you to deal with my boss. I want you to deal with my work. I want you to deal with the lady at the drive through I want you to deal with my wife. Hey, my kids, my ministry. And somehow, there's a leaning that takes place on him. Where everything that's going on is not the product of you and your skill and your abilities, but the product of him. Huge. There's a man here. Uh, there's a man here that has, has this opportunity. 
uh, he's been at this well. Really interesting story. And possibly I should read this for us first. And then we'll go from here. You with me? This is how it reads. John uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 15. And I want to look at this just in passing to kind of set us up and and deal with uh, what we really want to look at tonight. Uh, This is how it reads, 1 through 15. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number uh, number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been there, uh, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus uh, saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for such a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me uh, into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, well, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Now listen to this. Listen to what the guy says. The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Well, that's interesting. Later, Jesus found him in the temple. Now get this. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're all well again. Which the little translation there is, see, you are still well. Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. And in verse 15, the guy runs off and tells the Jews. Find this really interesting, okay? Find this really interesting. How often does this happen in my life? This is not the message we're going to look at tonight. Kind of a recap to kind of bring us into what we want to look at tonight. Uh, entitled this sermon, which is a really neat title. And don't get carried away with this. It's called Dog Vomit. Which is very biblical, you understand. Uh, that's scriptural. Okay? So you can quit looking at me like that. It's scriptural. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. wonder how much vomit I return to in my life. This man, been, at this, been, been here for 38 years of his life. I mean, the absolute undertow rebellion of refusing to live life the way he is, is present. Jesus approaches him, asking the simple question, do you want to get well? Guy starts saying, "Well, man, every time I, every time the water stirred, man, I'm trying to get in." Which is a whole story behind that. And Jesus just says, he says three words, gives three commands. Hey, stand up, take up your mat, and walk. Man's healed. Which is really interesting. It's uh, he stands up, he gets jumped by the Jews. Later on that week, sometime later, Jesus comes back in the temple, and guess where he finds this guy? Thirty-eight years he had to live here. Thirty-eight years he had to lie on that mat. 38 years, he laid there day after day, saying, I refuse for this to be my destiny. If I have to lay here the rest of my life, my life waiting to be healed, I refuse. Hey, I want to see the mountains, man. I want to walk. I want to live. Yet Jesus comes back sometimes later, and guess where he's laying? Right back there. Some of the commentators say he's impersonating the way he used to be. You're thinking, why in the world? That's the, that's the, that's the strangest thing I've heard in my life. Well, he's free. Why in the world would he come back here? See, he hated it. I mean, he wanted healed. He didn't want to be like this. He re- See, at any time, you understand, he could have left, went out in society and said, I'll cope. Hey, I'll cope, man. I'll go to Florida. I'll go to the beach. I'll go out in the uh, countryside. I'll, marry, I'll, I'll get married. I'll have some children who could take care of me. I'll just cope with life. He refused that, man. 
said, no, man, I want it 38 years. Stubborn rebellion, I want to be healed. Finally, he's healed. Jesus comes back. Where is he at? Same place. Same place he ate it. And Jesus says, you're still there. And it makes you wonder, why in the world is he still there? Well, he's returned back to the, the only thing he knows. Is it possible that he left, he went out in society and said, yes, I'm free. And then goes, what do I do with that? Where do I go? And all the way he trained himself to survive, all the needs that he trained himself in how to meet, and all the way that he always survived. See, all those kinds of things. See, we're just right back in there. And you find that he's in a whole different world, and he comes right back to the very thing that he was in bondage to. I tell you, that really, that's a great message. It's a gist of that passage. It's in here, something that we're going to kind of pass and just in passing look at. How many areas of our life does God set us free from and then we find ourselves going back there? See, how many guys get set free from sexual addiction and still flirt with that? Uh, How many women get set free from the self-perception of the world and still flirt with that? How many people get their self-esteem by how pretty they are and then they come back and flirt with that? How many times do we live life out of our own strength and, and literally watch as our world falls apart. Jesus comes and intersects our life. Sets us free from that living in strength. And we come back and flirt with that. Isn't that sad? That guy does that. Powerful story. Three things that are going on in here. Those are the first two. And they're powerful. And they need to be discussed. The third thing is something I really want to share with you. And uh, I want to talk about the setting first. And, and some interesting things. There is something going on inside of Jesus. Again, this, I believe this is what Wesley was getting at. Are you listening to me? Are you with me? I believe this is what Wesley was getting at. See, there's something going on here inside of Jesus that I so desperately want to go on inside of me, but is beyond my own capabilities of producing that. See, I, I, can't, I find that I can't discipline myself to be like Jesus. I was a Marine, you understand. I mean, stick it up. Make it go through. I mean, hey, tough it out. I just, you know, make it happen. Just, they used to say, suck it up, man. Just endure it. That does not work here. <laughs> you can't just tough it out to be a Christian. You can't discipline yourself to be the way Jesus wants you to be. It's beyond your reach. There's something in here, and Wesley saw this, there's something in here that you cannot do yourself that only God could do inside of you. I want to share it with you. Uh, this is what happens. Jesus comes up to the temple. Uh, he walks in, and of course, uh, it's really interesting in that day, the temple, the whole temple scene uh, was really fascinating because uh, I don't know if you know much about the temple and studying it, but Herod had done a lot of uh, uh, revamping of the temple and fixing it up, and of course there was gold all on the outside of it, and it was just it was a sight to see. It was a marvel, and of course uh, if you go back in the book of Nehemiah and you look at the rebuilding of the temple and all the different gates that they had, and and, and inside the, the intricate details, there was place where women could go in the temple and only women could be there, and they had their own little place. They had place where the crowds would come in. They had the place where you could set up a little market. You understand when you came in for some of the feasts, especially the Passover. You had to have certain uh, provisions to celebrate the feast. And if you lived a great distance away and you were coming to the feast, you know, uh, all kinds of problems. Uh, If you want to bring your own lamb, you have to bring food for that lamb. You have to keep it there some of the week. You know, it's hard to get in a motel with a lamb. And uh, see, all that kind of problems. So they set that up so that when you come in the temple, you could buy all that kind of stuff there. The unleavened bread, you could buy the, the feed for the animal, you could buy the animal. Not to mention, you see, your animal had to be without spot or blemish. So you pick an animal off from the farm and you're going to bring it in town. You're on your way. Oh, he got caught in the barbed wire fence or a bush or whatever and cuts his leg. He's See, he's got a blemish. Now you're stuck with this lamb for the week. And 
see, to kind of get past all of that kind of stuff. And certainly there was greed in there as well. You know, type of deal. But, hey, they had all the provisions in there. So they made place for that in the temple. So the temple was a, was a community, man. It was, it was humongous. They had places where you offered the sacrifices, places where the priests went, where only the priests went. They had a place where the high priest went and had his quarters. All this kind of stuff going on. You see Jesus, and this amazes me. You understand this? You see Jesus coming into the temple. And it's really interesting where Jesus kind of always gravitates to. Uh, kind of mentioned this earlier this week. He doesn't hang out in the places where probably we would hang out. See, he doesn't go to the nice areas of the temple. You don't see him reclining with the upper echelon, the upper class. You don't see him hanging out with the cream of the crop in the temple. You don't see him sitting in the nicest spots. You don't see him gathering with the the nicest people and the fashionable ones. See, he's not down on the Hollywood Boulevard strip of the, which is really not that nice anyway, but the Hollywood Boulevard strip of the temple. See, that's not where he's at. This story picks up, and where is Jesus kind of lingering? He's over by the sheep gate. And you know what the sheep gate is like. I mean, obviously sheep coming in and out of there, and you know what they leave behind, so that's going to be a mess everywhere. And then you got all, and not only by the sheep gate, but by the sheep gate was there was this covered, there was this pool, and there was this covered colonnade, and uh, there was all these blind, and, and there was the lame, and there was the crippled. All these kind of people were laying over here. And you understand that this is the kind of scene where you see Jesus setting in. See, no one's going to hang around this place. See, you got the diseased over here, you got the, the underprivileged over here. That's this group, that's who they are. See, no one hangs around here except this, this is where the, the cattle come in. See, you don't hang around over here. That's where Jesus comes in. Now, the reason these blind and lame people were here uh, is because there was this tradition. And I'm working, I've been studying this passage, and I want to be careful not to read into the text, but uh, I think there may be a sermon brewing underneath this passage. I think there is. You see all of these people that are waiting around this pool, and the reason they're waiting is there is a tradition. There is a tradition that they're banking on. I can't find it in the Old Covenant. I can't find it in the Old Testament Scriptures. If you know where it's at, let me know. I can't find it. The tradition is that an angel of the Lord would descend and come into the water. When the waters are stirred, the first person in was healed. That's the tradition. Everybody was gathered here. And see, they put their hope on a tradition, and then they're putting their hope on... See, they're, they're, they're dead on that. See, my, my perspective, and one of the things I'm finding, as soon as you become dead set on a tradition, you're in trouble. Because you can miss him in light of a tradition. Traditions aren't the big deal. Don't want to read into that. Boy, that'll preach, I think. But you got these guys, and they're all waiting on, on this tradition, you understand? They're all waiting to be healed. Now, this is really interesting. Look at Jesus. He comes in, and he just doesn't pass. He doesn't, doesn't come by and, and drop some food, or, hey, here's, a, here's some money, and flicks it here and there, and pats him on the head, tell you I love you, and then go on. There's some really interesting things that take, take place here. Look at this. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five color colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Listen to this. When Jesus saw him lying there and then learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? It's interesting that he not only sees all these people there, but he sees this one particular individual here and then takes the time of learning his condition. In other words, he comes into the temple scene, he sees everybody kind of sitting around there and uh, sees this guy over here and probably one of his disciples says, yeah, you know who that guy is? Oh man, sad story with that guy. He's been there for 38 years. Got really bad luck. 38 years, he's never been in the, never been in the pool. 
Jesus takes the time and cares about this, learns of his condition, hears everything that he has to hear about this fellow, then walks up and engages in conversation with him, and he comes up and says what's seemingly, again, the most ridiculous question. But after you really look at the man's response and where he ends up after the healing, it wasn't such an ignorant question. It wasn't such a ridiculous question. He asked the man, do you really want to get well? And listen to what the man says. The man says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So he tells his sad story. <laughs> you know, it's not that I don't want to get healed. It's every time I try to get into the pool, hey, someone beats me. Which, again, that's really bad luck. I mean, 38 years. You know, I'd have given it up by that time. But 38 years, the man still is not healed. And there's probably even alluding here, hey, do you want to stick around and help me? When the water stir, you can help me in. And Jesus looks at the man. And he says, get up, gives him three imperatives in the original language. That's commands. This is not suggestions. Uh, it's even to the point that he, this man has no choice in the matter. Jesus says, get up, take up, and walk. Get up, take up your mat, and walk. And immediately the man's healed. He stands up and he walks. Now, this is the most amazing aspect of the story to me. See, after this takes place, there's no evangelistic proposition here. Jesus doesn't use this opportunity. And man, what an opportunity. This is a healing. This is, this is an eye-opener for everybody in this place. 38, 38 years he'd been there. I mean, you can't tell me that the rest of the people, in the, in the, uh, the lame even, that are laying there, and all the people who bring in their sheep, and, and those who are staying around, the disciples. You talk about a prime opportunity for evangelism. Are you listening to me? A prime opportunity for evangelism is taking place right here. And he never mentions it. He never says that he's the Messiah. He never says who he is. He never uses this as an opportunity to lead this man to become a follower. He doesn't sit down and give him the gospel. Nothing like that. In fact, what you find is, is immediately he leaves, he runs into the Jews. They're really struggling with the fact that he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And when they ask him why he's doing so, he says, hey, the guy who told me to do it, uh, told me to, uh, the guy who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. And they ask who he was, and verse 13 says, the man who was healed had no idea who it was. And he didn't have an idea because the crowd had moved and distracted him or because the man had uh, ran off. It literally says, the man had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. In other words, this was the initiative of Jesus. It wasn't like he didn't have time to tell this guy. It wasn't like he was healed and got up and ran off. It's like he healed and then purposely slipped away. Isn't that strange? Healing. Wonderful opportunity. It's walking up in a mall. You see someone sitting in a wheelchair. Been there for 30 years. He said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. He stands up and says, all right, see you. <laughs> walk, walk down the mall. Go to Old Navy. And never say anything about it. Well, that's a waste. That's not how you do these things, man. After they stand up and walk, say, wow, you know how that happened? Let me tell you about Jesus. See, that's how you do this. See, Jesus goofed this whole thing up and didn't even, <laughs> didn't use that. See, I really struggled with that. See, there's no evangelistic push here whatsoever. There's nothing here whatsoever that has to do with that. This was not an evangelistic outreach. This was not an opportunity to share the gospel. Jesus simply walked up in this guy, intervened in his life, and that was it. That's all that he did. Really blew my mind on that. But again, beginning to come back and look at this, and look at the kind of setting on this, you begin to see an attitude in Jesus in, in this passage. And I really want us to see this here. And it's something that, especially if you've been in the book of John, where you get familiar with Jesus, please hear this, if you get familiar with Jesus, you're going to see this attitude more and more and more. And I'm convinced if you get around somebody who just desperately loves Jesus, you're going to see this attitude more and more and more. 
I, I find it interesting. Jesus comes in the temple. He's the Messiah. Okay? He's the fulfillment of that deal. He, he, he is the one that everything in that temple is pointing to. And yet, where is he hanging at? He's hanging over by the animals. He's hanging by the least popular place. See, he never goes to the most, the, the most crowded, the, the best areas in town. He never goes to the places all the prophets would go. Where do you see him always hanging out? Always. See, he's always hanging out with lepers. Lepers. That's not good. No one hangs out with lepers. He's always embracing the blind. See, he's always down, away from the religious. But he's, see, he's always out with the prostitutes and where they're at. He's always in the back alleys, loving the unlovable. He stopped for two days in Samaria. And Jesus comes into this, comes into this scene, and what you see going on in Jesus is not this, well, I need to do a good deed today, and I should probably go over here, and that's what God would do. There is this internal drive, absolutely convinced, especially when you begin to look at the language, even in the English, it's so obvious, that he comes in, he sees the lame over there, he sees this one guy, been over there for 38 years, probably was evident, he probably had all his little house right there, and all of his little belongings, and all the little deals that are taking place. He learns of this guy, takes the initiative, learns that guy's situation, and walks over with no angle whatsoever, you understand. See, this had, this had no angle in this, it wasn't to grow his church, this wasn't to create disciples for himself. This wasn't to look good. And see, there was no flashiness involved. This, was, this had nothing to do whatsoever except he saw this man. His heart went out to him and he immediately went over and said, man, do you want to get well? The man starts crying and complaining and all this. And Jesus just says three simple words, get up, take up your mat and walk. Just invades this. 38 years this man has been there. And Jesus invades his life. And the man gets up and walks. And after this point, see, there, there's no angle in that. And again, it seems like I've repeated myself this, this week uh, a lot. But see, it's easy for me to witness to somebody when I can invite them to my church. Nothing wrong with inviting people to your church. But you know what I'm saying. See, it's really easy to have an evangelistic push. See, it's really easy for me to, to, to minister somebody. It's really easy, me, easy for me to, to be involved in someone's life and recommending them something in terms of a book or a CD, or so, especially if it's mine, you understand. But see, it's something else just to be... Could you imagine walking into your world, walking into your society, and just could not help to be drawn to the hurting, the dying, and the lame, the poor, the helpless, the suffering... See, there's no I should in this, this section. There's none of this I ought to. Jesus walks into the temple and he's drawn there. He's drawn there, man. See, that, that's his place. That's where he fits in. See, that's where he hangs out. See, when he's off the road, he doesn't hang out in Jerusalem. Where does he go? To Galilee. See, that's, that's not the popular place to be. See, no prophets ever come from Galilee. That's not the place to be when you're going, you know, running for the Messiah office, if that's what, the way they see him. See, he's drawn to this kind of thing. He stands in opposition in this passage against another group. Okay, You have Jesus, who has an internal drive. It seems that he's always drawn to the hurting. He's always drawn to the suffering. He's always drawn to those that he says need a doctor, who need sick, you know, who are sick, who need help. He constantly, the scriptures constantly talk about how he has compassion on those. And he stops and his heart goes out to them. 
See, he doesn't play favorites. See, that's not him. And it's not something that he, well, I should do this, and that's yeah, probably the right thing. It's just he's driven for that. and he, see, You can't stop him. He just cannot help but to serve. The disciples come up into an upper room, and he takes off his outer garment, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he falls on his feet, and he's and his hands and knees, and he's washing their feet. And See, that's a style of his life. That's how he has always lived. He is a servant. He's always pouring his life out. you know where Jesus is right now, this very moment, as we sit in this service? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I. So I used to get the idea that he's in heaven on a surfboard and uh, got his wave runner in his mansion. Wave runner parks outside the mansion because it's right on the beach. And uh, right beside mine. And, uh, you know, he's waiting for me to get there. And he's, you know, saved me a spot at the table, of course, you know, but he's out, you know. That's not it. See, this wasn't a show for him. It was his life here. It was his life for eternity. He's concerned. He has one need in his life, and that's to meet the needs of others. That's not a show. That is a drive. That is not an act. It's not a, I should. It's I cannot help myself. How can I meet the need? How can I intersect your life? How can I help you? See, that's, that's, that's what's going on. There's nothing, there's no angle in this whatsoever for him. Now, he stands in opposition against another group, which is the Jews, which are the leaders of Israel, which is really interesting for me. Uh, they have to be aware of this guy. Okay? You understand the priests were always in the temple. They were the Levites. That was their job. That's where they hang out. That's what they did. That was their whole deal. They're obviously familiar with this kind of person. He'd been there for 38 years. They'd seen his face a lot. They've walked right past his mat. Probably would have been nice to him from time to time. You know, gave him money, helped him. That's the kind of, I mean, that's how they made their life. That's how they had their livelihood was off the mercies of others. It's really interesting that... Um, you look at their attitude. You kind of look at not what they do. Because in their eyes, they were really trying to uphold the law. But there's an internal attitude that's going on inside of them. I want you to see. The man uh, is cured. Verse 9. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man, Okay, 38 years. Okay? 38 years. The man said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. (laughs) 38 years! Okay? Lady comes into church. She's been crippled all her life. Uh, She tucks her legs up underneath her seat. Uh, She cuts her pants off right to here and tucks them in her chair so it looks like, you know, it looks appropriate and, you know, kind of blends in. Comes into service, Jesus heals her. Boom, immediately. She's healed. She stands up. And the first person someone says to her is, come under, excuse me, those pants are a little high. Don't you think you need to be putting some on a little bit more appropriate than that? 30 years she hasn't walked. <laughs> Does that make any sense whatsoever? I've seen that. Man comes into church. <laughs> this is my favorite. Man comes into church. Ah... Uh, I don't seem the way they seem. Church seems to get hung up on his hair, on his clothing. I don't get hung up on that at all. Doesn't bother me. Jesus had long hair, praise the Lord. Man has an earring, all these kind of things. Jesus moves on his life. Tears break all over him. That boy crumbles to the altar, just falls on there. 
50 people are gathered around him, loving him and hugging him. He gets saved, stands up, tries to give a testimony. There's tears and boogers and all that kind of stuff just <laughs> dripping. And, have you seen that kind of thing? They're stuttering over themselves. They can't talk. They're blowing and they're just crying and all that. And it never fails. Someone walks up to him and says, you're going to cut your hair, right? Yeah, you're going to cut your hair, right? And that music, you're going to change that music, right? I just want to choke him. I want to grab at him saying, the name of Jesus, get out of this house. Get out of here. You're not welcome. You're not helpful. Go away. See, that's the deal. That's that group. And you understand, you may not, and these, they thought they were doing good. I said it last night, my brother and I prayed at the altar the other night. I have never seen anyone get saved through. Never happens, man. Never happens. Jesus never does that. Never, Jesus never walks up to someone and say, you dirty, rotten, blank, whatever that may say. And they say, oh yeah, I need to get my life right. Falls on her. That, that never happens. It is always out of a response for love. And this group here has... Let me, let me share with you. Look at this here. Again, not, I, I hope I'm not seeing, just seeing stuff that are not, that's in the text. But that kind of response of those kind of people, do you realize the profound influence that they have over a guy like this? Immediately it says. Uh, the Sabbath day, they come up to him, so you're carrying him out on the Sabbath. The man says, hey, listen, the guy who healed me, you remember me, I'm the guy you said over there, the guy who healed me, I'm healed, you understand, told me to do it. They want to know immediately who he is. And of course, he doesn't know who it is. He said he slipped away. Later, Jesus sees him in the temple. He says, stop sinning, man. Which is the whole idea of sinning in Jesus' uh, uh, concept, is, is, uh, in the, especially in John's concept, has to do with turning away from the darkness and living the light. Turning away from a life living out of your own resource. Living out of your... Missing the mark type of thing. Not measuring up. And living out of a... See, he's back there under his own strength. Meeting his needs the way he's always met them. That kind of deal. Jesus says, stop that, man. Stop that. I've set you free from that. And look what the man does. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He sells Jesus out. It's like he's accountable to them. He's, he owes them. It's, he's seeking their approval and... You see, there's this, there's this oppression that is taking place on them. See, Jesus talks about this all the time. He says, come to me, my burden is light. <laughs> I'm not going to burden. In fact, I'll take your burdens from you. See, there was a control. There was a manipulation. There was a... I meant well. And most men probably go through this at one point. We have this ego problem. And uh, we're born with it. And we, we oftentimes think, we, well, we take the scriptures to say things they don't say. When you become a Christian, you open the Bible, and you find out that you're the head of your household. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And immediately, it's your job to keep your family saved. And uh, when I got married to my wife, I'm telling you, I was not, I had not an evil bone in my heart. Not an evil bone in my body, not an evil motive in my heart. But I was a Pharisee of a Pharisee, man. I was a Jew to my wife. Honey, came in today and saw you watching that TV show. Just want to help you. It's probably not what Jesus would watch. Let's repent. Come on, let's go. Let's pray. Honey, I heard that conversation that you have with your sister. I'm just trying to help you. Just want to serve you and meet your name. Sound a little bit judgmental. Come on, let's pray about it. Because, you know, I was helping her. You know, that's why God put me in her life, you understand. You've never done that? 
You've never done that? You've never walked around and looked down at your kids and God is, just knowing that God has put you as judge and jury in their life? That you're to hold, help hold the line and the standard to the life that they're living? And God brought me to a rude awakening in my life. That that was none of my business. That she does not belong to me, she belongs to him. And being head of the household of my family was not taking control of my wife. It's becoming the head of my wife as Christ is the head of the church. Which is he died for the church. See, he never used his church for himself. He never sacrificed their feelings for his. He washed their feet. He was, he's a, see, when they were wrong, he, he, didn't, he didn't say anything about it. See, he knew Judas before it ever took place. And yet Judas even sat with him at the Last Supper. See, he ain't even the bread. He said, I love you, man. He told Peter, I know what you're going to do, but after you turn back, I'll strengthen your brother. <laughs> that's this. See, that's Jesus. And then there's the other group. See, there's something that's going on in Jesus, and I'm telling you, you cannot do. You cannot discipline yourself to do that. You cannot tie your fingers together so you remind. So, so you'll be reminded to constantly serve those around you. Wouldn't it be something? Now, journey with me. I believe Wesley got into this. Wouldn't it be something if you could pray, Jesus, I want you to do something in me that I cannot do myself. I want to have that nature going on inside of me. Uh, Paul talks about it in Philippians. He took on the nature of a servant. Gave up himself. The very nature of God. And served those around him. See, that's who he was. He was a servant. And you see this over and over and over throughout the gospel. Well, you see it in verses 39 through 42. Jesus is going up to Galilee on vacation. On vacation. Stops for two days. Preaches from her front doorstep. After he's been worn out. After all that's taken place in Jerusalem. And then you have the Pharisees and, and constantly arguing with him all the way up through uh, Lazarus and the healing of Lazarus. And look, listen how the Pharisees respond to Jesus. And I'll just read this to you. This is a result after the healing of Lazarus. And it's actually in chapter 11. Around verse 47. It says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and said, What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take both our palace and our nation away. Where's their focus? Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, says, you know nothing at all. <laughs> Jeremiah translation, you don't know how to serve yourself at all. Listen to this. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that of the whole nation. Perish. Isn't this so obvious? Where's the focal center point of their life? Where does everything reside from? It's, it's, see, they see from only their point of view. It's only what's best for them. See, they're the first ones when the music is changed in the service. See, they're the first one to call the pastor and say, well, I didn't feel the Holy Spirit this morning. Because we didn't have the music the way I like it. See, they're the first ones to complain when, you know, their parking space is taken by a visitor in the, in the lot. You guys with me in the back there? See, they're, they're the first ones. Some of you are laughing. I haven't talked to Pal how at all this week. I cannot make that happen. I had taught myself all my life that people were ob objects. In every form. Men, women, 
boss. Every, every aspect, people are objects. Can I tell you the longings in my heart to be able to walk and live in the world and have the same passions that he has? See, that's the, see there is no legalism in Christianity. There is no legalism. Now, I'm not talking about the absence of rules, because you can have rules and not be legalistic. Okay, I'm not talking about the absence of rules. But I'm talking about a burning heart, passion, a desire to run after the things that God runs after. I do not see how people live their entire life under the strains and the, and, and the bonds of some of the bondage that we choose to live with. I cannot tell you what it's like to walk into Barnes & Noble and walk past the men's magazine rack and I have to bite my teeth or put on blinders or wouldn't it be something you just saw people different? Wouldn't it be something? If you just didn't have to just absolutely bite your lip and just absolutely just cringe over certain people in your family. If you could walk into church on Sunday and say, it's not about me. <laughs> it's never been about me. It's about those who are around me. To be, I watch this going on in my wife. We don't get very many days off. And we'll be going out. Last uh, couple weeks ago, we were on our way. I'll build up my wife for you. We were on our way to, we was in Kankakee, and we had a one day off. And we were going over to some town. I don't remember where it was. And we were on our way, and this lady got her hood up on her car on the side of the road. And it wasn't like I didn't want to stop. But Corinna looks at me and goes, gave me that look. And I was like, really quickly, all right. Well, it was a three-hour ordeal. It always is. You know, and she's all upset and called a tow truck when it's a, it's a radiator hose that came loose. You know. And see, there's just something that's unsettling inside that refuses to allow us to act the way we normally would. There's, it's just the things that he would normally go after, we go after. Does that make sense? Do you have that going on in your life? Do you have that kind of a hunger and a passion and a desire going on in your life? Is your Christian walk a have-to or a got-to type of thing? Why do you come to church on Sunday? Well, that's what Christians do. <laughs> or is it, i got to be there. See, why do you open your Bible? Well, I really need to do that. Or is it, I can't keep my nose out of it. <laughs> Give me something to have those kind of drives. Uh, he can begin to pull that off in you. Uh, I want to read you my favorite verse in closing. It comes out of the book of Ezekiel. And I'll just read it to you. Listen to this. Um, Jesus is the example of what God talked about in the Old Testament. Listen to this. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to this, my favorite part. And I will place my spirit, big S, I will place my spirit in you and cause you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. 
that literally what he talks about in the book of Ezekiel, that there's going to come a time that God is telling through Ezekiel, there's going to come a time when God is going to take his Holy Spirit, he's going to place it inside of you and cause you to live a way that you could never live. He's going to cause you to love after things that you would never love after. To run after things you'd never run after. Cause you to burn in a way that you never could burn without him. Cause you to burn after things he would burn after. Mm. Jesus, I want that going on in my life tonight. I don't really know how uh, much that moves us or how exciting that is for us. Cross-style ministries. Sounds like a catchy title. What does that mean? Cross-style? Maybe that the style of your life was a cross. You never lived for yourself. In fact, it's kind of hard to miss it. If we would follow your life moment by moment and just watch you. And at the end of the li- end of your life, see you on a cross. We'd probably shrug and say, yeah, figures. <laughs> he was doing it all along. I, I'm so different than that. I've come to the, to the realization that I can't, I can't produce that. I can't discipline that. I have asked you to set me apart entirely to you. Sanctify me through, man, to the tip of my toes. I'm not talking about walking perfect, never sinning again. Although let it be so in my life. I'm talking about a change of my motive, of my will, of my heart, of the inner workings of my body. I do not want the flow of your presence and the urging of your spirit to be a chore in my life. I want my heart to be in sync with yours. I want my motives to be in sync with yours. I want you to move inside the inner workings of my body. I want you to crawl down into my spirit and my mind. I want you to untwist whatever I've twisted. I want you to remove, and hey, religious words, Jesus, but I want you to remove the stain of sin from my life. I want you to remove the attitude of rebellion against you inside of me. I want you to remove the self-protectiveness of my life. Am I going to be perfect? No. (laughs) Am I going to make goof-ups? Yeah. Am I going to fall flat on my face? But I'm never going to willfully turn away from you again. It will not be my intent that you're going to begin a process, of a growth process in me for the rest of my life that I'm going to want to run after the same things that you run after. Jesus, let it be so. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this service tonight. Would you move in the lives of those of us who are present? Has, have you worked that in us this evening? Is that going on in our lives? We believe in you and we love you, but are the same drives and passions going on in you going on in us? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm not going to keep you long tonight. It's almost eight. I want to give you the opportunity to respond tonight.